today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, Saudi Arabia and Canada continue to spat, and it's got it started off as a, a tweet, uh, perhaps not an innocent tweet, but certainly a tweet from uh, Christia Freeland, and then has kind of escalated from there in regard to their treatment of uh, political prisoners in Saudi Arabia. Should Canada get itself involved in the business of other countries? What is the advantages and disadvantages to all of this? And of course, where has this all ended up? Let's bring in Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, and is with us now. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, We appreciate this. Hey, thanks for having me on. Are you surprised, Stephanie, this has escalated to where it has? Or where is it? What are your thoughts on this? I am surprised it has gone so far, and um, I think the Saudi reaction has just been well over the top. And <laughs> I don't think it's just Canadians that have seen that. I think we've seen a lot of editorials in U.S. newspapers uh, and around the world, frankly, that have just kind of been kind of gobsmacked by by this heavy, very heavy-handed uh, response from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, of course, is um, no stranger at um, lashing out at its critics, for example, and it's done that with European countries, but never has it gotten to the point where basically a country has said, yes, we're going to sell all of our stakes in a country regardless of economic hit. Um, like, that's astounding. So, um, and, and, like, to pull people away from potentially life-saving medical treatment because of a tweet is... Um, not something that normal countries do. So, so what's yes. different? <laughs> you, you talked about, the, you know, there's nothing new to this reaction from Saudi Arabia. So what's different now? Why is this situation, this tweet, this, or these series of tweets now, I guess, wh- why, has this, um, why has this escalated? What's different here? That is a really good question. And I think this is what has a lot of us scratching our heads, trying to figure out, okay, well, why was the reaction so severe in this one instance? I mean, the United Nations had actually used very similar language just a few weeks before, um, and you didn't really get that kind of pushback at the UN at all. But uh, in the case of Canada, there was this reaction. So, you know, it could be a couple of things. Um, It could just be the fact that, you know, Canada might be seen as a low, and, and this is what concerns me, frankly, is that Canada, without the protection of the United States, is increasingly seen as like kind of maybe um, uh, the rent of the litter or low-hanging fruit, and as a result, you know, more authoritarian countries who want to make a point about you know, their policies in the world can kind of maybe pick on Canada in the way they can't pick on Europeans because of their either stronger economic ties or because of the European Union or the United States because, you know, Trump is, is not one for um, restraint himself. So I, I think the, the, the concern I have is that, you know, people are seeing right now the U.K. is busy with Brexit. The U.S. is just so occupied with Trump, who's not inclined to human rights anyways. So Canada speaks out our allies aren't really prepared to defend mm. us, and that so, might make us more of a target. So the PM's a lightning rod for human rights right now? That, yeah, or, like, circumstances are such that, you know, if, you know, you're better off, you know, and there's, there's power in numbers, right. right? There's power in alliances. So if normally what would happen in these kinds of circumstances, if, you know, there was a tiff between Canada and Saudi Arabia, normally the United States would kind of publicly and probably behind the scenes work to try and find some kind of solution, probably taking the side of Canada and then working with Saudi Arabia. But right now the United States has no interest in doing that. Jared Kushner, the president's, president's son-in-law, has very good relations with the, with the crown prince who's essentially behind all of this. So that's one problem. Uh, and again, secondly, I, I don't think you're going to see Trump do a lot in order to um, 
and this is what's so radically different about U.S. policy, is that other presidents have at least paid lip service to the idea of human rights, but that's not something that Donald Trump is interested in. So to answer your question, is Canada more of a target on human rights? Probably. Uh, I, I thought Saudi Arabia was progressing. I mean, we, you know, there's a big, big stories a few months ago about women driving and all of this. And, and, and I don't know whether that drew more attention to the fact that, that they are, ne- are not equal citizens or, 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 or whether it helped the cause. But, but considering how they have been progressing, how does, what's your reaction to this? Well, you know, you raise a really interesting point. We have seen a lot of progress on some things that, you know, were basically unthinkable just a few years ago, like movie theaters. They've now opened movie theaters. They've opened up, right. um, uh, you know, the rights for women to drive. That was music, yeah. Thing in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we've also seen a really erratic um, foreign policy from Saudi Arabia. So, for example, um, you know, I think famously, and I think I discussed it on the radio station last week, I mean, they, they basically kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister for a few weeks. Uh, and tried to force him to resign because they didn't like him. Um, they, they, what they're doing to Canada now, they essentially tried to deal with, due to Qatar, which is a neighboring country. It was far more dramatic for Qatar uh, in, the, in that part of the world. They're fighting a brutal humanitarian war in Yemen, which there is you know, hundreds of thousands of people who don't have access to food or water. And in fact, last week we found out, you know, um, a, a, Basically, a plane from the Saudi-led coalition targeted a school bus and killed children um, on their way to school. So, I mean, we're seeing a brutal foreign policy that, on the one hand, so this kind of erratic behavior is, I don't want to say it's the norm, but, I mean, it's kind of a bucket of surprises recently. And that's really been since... um, the current prince, again, as his name is Mohammed bin Salman. So mm-hmm. uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman has, um, you know, he was originally in charge of defense and security, and that's when we started seeing these invasions and started seeing these kind of more dramatic policy moves. And now that he's really effectively in charge of the country, we're seeing this in, in, in uh, other realms as well. So as far as Canada, uh, whether it's Christia Freeland or the prime minister, is, is this worth the fuss? Is it worth the fuss? What's the gain for us? What's the loss? Um, you know, I, I don't think that anyone could have realistically anticipated this level of, of retaliation. I think that, you know, you, you would expect retaliation in the form of a, a tweet, um, perhaps banning someone from speaking uh, at a conference or canceling some kind of summit. Or Those are the kinds of normal things that you see. But what we're dealing with here is basically taking the Canadian ambassador and making him persona non grata. Uh, which basically is, it means the person's not welcome and they, they have mm-hmm. to leave the country. That is one of the most severe steps you can take in diplomatic relations, like short of armed force. Like, it's really, really serious. So I don't think they could have really have anticipated that strong of a reaction. Um, is it the end of the world? No, because I think... On the one hand, we don't really have a large number of ties in that region. So, you know, I mean, the economic interests are, are, are pretty minimal. It's, it's never good at a time when you are looking for more trade partners because Donald Trump's kind of uh, often having a little tariff party everywhere that you want more par- trade partners. But um, So it's never good when a part of the world is kind of now inaccessible to you. But it's not really that bad. What I worry about is kind of what I talked about closer to the beginning of this segment, which is, is Canada more isolated? Is it more alone? And what will that mean if other dictators feel that they can pick on us? Hmm. Certainly feels like the world is splintering, doesn't it? It doesn't feel 
great. Yeah. Uh, the tweet. <laughs> you know, I'm not full of optimism. Yeah. Uh, the Saudi foreign minister criticized Canada in a tweet: negative and surprising attitude, an avert, an avert and blatant interference in the international affairs of the kingdom. Uh, went on to say the ball's in their court, and Canada needs to fix this mistake. How do they do that? Well, I think the understanding of that tweet is that there would basically be a requirement for some kind of. Uh, very formal groveling apology from the prime minister, as well as potentially the sacking of Christia Freeland as foreign minister. Uh, I think that's the expectation of what the Saudis are basically. Wow, that's a pretty tall order considering where where she is in NAFTA right now. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I mean, (laughs) sorry, that's our best card. We're not losing that one, are we? Yeah, no. So it's it's kind. She's very popular, right? Like, I mean, I think she's one of the few ministers that basically politicians from from most parties at least respect, right? And you can't, you definitely can't say that about um, the entire Liberal caucus. So I don't really see this as something that is is realistic or likely. And it's kind of just, you know. Like, I mean, the Saudis have kind of cornered themselves here by kind of making some of these outlandish demands, which is unfortunate. So what I, what I suspect and like what I'm being told um, by uh, friends in Ottawa is that what we're seeing is some efforts behind the scenes. So, I mean, the depressing thing is we haven't seen a lot of public commentary from our allies, but I'm told that Europeans are actually kind of working pretty hard behind the scenes to try and do something about this. Certainly we haven't seen... Um, since last week, any further escalation in this, and that's a very positive thing. And I think what you're going to see Canada do is basically just kind of try to wait this out for a bit. Um, it might take a, it might take a couple of years, frankly, but let's just try and cool things down, and then hopefully in a few years we can kind of bring everyone to the table again. Um, but I know, for example, at uh, the, the end- British are working behind the scenes in order to try and at least calm things down. At the end, at the end, uh, Stephanie, should we have stuck our nose in this business? I mean, again, you're saying that the others are speaking up quietly. They haven't done it publicly. Uh, I, you know, I can understand there's other fish to fry here, and maybe, the, you know, others should have thought of that here. That being said, are you surprised others are not speaking up? And, and, and did we stick our nose in where it didn't belong? Uh, even, yeah, even though morally we're right. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I I think what I would try to stress here is the tweet was not out of the ordinary, right? This wasn't something that Canada hasn't done before. And and even, you know, people have been pulling up the tweets of uh, Stephen Harper, John Baird, uh, in the former government. They were very active on speaking out about the same group of activists, frankly, that are now, that, that this particular tweet was about. So, you know, it's not new. So this, you know, the idea that we're sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. It's like, well, we've been sticking our nose there for a long time. It's just this kind of reaction that's new. And um, I would be very sad at a time when we're seeing increasing amounts of authoritarianism worldwide that Canada would kind of shrink into itself and, and hide. I think we need to, but what we need to do is work better with our allies in maybe doing this. So maybe having more of a coordinated approach, because again, I think Canada being a little bit more isolated with the United States under Trump, we need to cling on to what's kind of left of our good friends and and work with them. So I think that's kind of what I would advise, but I would be very sad if Canada stopped speaking out about um, serious human rights abuses worldwide. Is this more about domestic politics for both sides? That's a really good question. Um, in the case of Saudi Arabia, uh, it's definitely partially about domestic politics. We talked a little bit about what's going on. Um, the one thing I would say is that one thing Mohammed bin Salman is, is known for is not tolerating any criticism whatsoever. So he's yes, he's liberalizing, yes, he's putting these reforms, but he's saying, while I'm doing these reforms, you cannot criticize me at all. 
like this is a no-go area. So even if, you know, he's doing some of the things that these activists want, he's not going to take any guff from them whatsoever. And this is a clear sign of that. And it's also a signal to regional and his international critics as well. Canada, I think Canadians do... I'll be dead honest with you. I don't think Canadians are that interested in international affairs, which is <laughs> a bad thing to say. But um, it's, I think Canadians are, tend to worry more about the economic issues here at home. Um, okay, so think, let me ask you this, Stephanie. If, yeah. if, that's, if that's the concern of most Canadians, why are our politicians going here? I mean, again, it's always great to speak up and say, this is right, this is wrong, we need to lead in this. But again, is, is this more about setting the tone for the Prime Minister than it is about helping these people who have been imprisoned? I'm going to answer that with a yes and no, which is very inconvenient. I will say yes, because I do think it's politically popular for Trudeau, especially within the Liberal Party, to speak out against human rights. And I do think, by and large, even if Canadians aren't that interested, they do want Canada to kind of be an example for the world. I think Canadians like being that example for the world. Sure. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is we do have an interest in defending human rights worldwide. And it's, that is, you know, countries that have good human rights tend to be more stable. Right. They tend to be more, uh, you know, like easier to deal with. If you look at the kind of authoritarian countries out there, they're not the most stable countries that are out there. The, uh, the kind of illusions of strong men, I think, are, are very persuasive. But in reality, you know, if you look at Russia, their economy is in the garbage. Look at what's happening in Turkey and their economy recently. So I think, you know, when you promote human rights, you're actually promoting a more stable world order. And that's an order that Canada actually profits from because then we can actually engage in trade with these countries and not worry about revolutions happening because people are are upset that they don't have their rights. So I think a cautious, um, moderate advocacy for human rights is actually a smart foreign policy. You don't want to go overboard, of course, right? You don't want to mm-hmm. just be yelling at everyone all the time. But this is where I think that, you know, Canada working with its allies is, going to be the smarter policy uh, ahead, especially in a more unstable world. So you said you said earlier, you mentioned earlier that uh, hopefully time will heal all wounds here and it will all blow over. Does there have to be some sort of communication, some sort of apology before that will happen? And, and could this drag out for years? This could drag out for years. I don't think we should, we should underestimate that. Um, uh, if you look at Masa- Mohammed bin Salman, he's not... Um, he, he tends to carry a grudge. Um, so I, I'm not expecting this to, to reconcile anytime soon. The path ahead, to me, is not necessarily clear. It may have to be at some point when the liberals are out of power and a new government comes in, and they say, well, look, we want to restart relations with you on, a, on like a fresh page. So maybe not offering an apology, but saying, hey, we want to turn the page, we want to get something going. So we could see that happening in the future. Um, but you know, like again, you know, Canada's interests in the Middle East are so minimal. So this really um, isn't of uh, of any sort of interest, whether it's financial or what have you, to Canada. It doesn't have much of an interest, impact. Yeah, well, the interest for me is what it says about Canada's place right. right now in the world, and just how much more precarious it's really become in the last two years. Stephanie Carvin has been with us, Assistant Professor of International Affairs, Carleton University, Saudi Arabia and Canada. The spat continues. Uh, Hopefully time will heal all wounds. Stephanie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I always like to be depressing. Thanks for having me on. You're not at all. You're educational. (laughs) Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario is backing out of the basic income pilot program. Of course, this was started by the uh, Wynn Liberals a while ago and involved cities like Lindsay, Thunder Bay, and Hamilton. Uh, Ford has now announced that they're scrapping that $50 million a year program before it has seen its... uh, 
its lifespan of, I guess it was three years, supposed to go to 2020, I believe. And then, of course, uh, produce some data to either prove whether it was worth it or uh, whether it was smarter to stay with the, the system that we currently have. Let's bring in Deirdre Pike, social, uh, Senior Social Planner, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, and is with us now. Deirdre, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. So, uh, for those that may not know, give us the objective of this program. What was it supposed to do? Well, really, basic income uh, or guaranteed uh, income is uh, intended to um, create a floor that uh, would help people who are living below um, uh, the poverty line of the area um, to uh, to be able to maintain uh a living uh, level of dignity, um, you know. So this would include people on social assistance and also people working that are working minimum wage jobs or um, precarious employment. So, uh, you know, 60% of people on basic income in our pilot were working, and so um, it's that uh, kind of thing. It's a it's an economic, um, like an income security response to uh, really changing uh, employment. Uh, that's happening in our uh, economies because of uh, um, automation and so on, and uh, and the result of uh, of so many people uh, requiring social assistance and so on. So it responds to all of that. So what was it replacing? Why? And I guess I guess we don't have the data, so we don't know. But why would this system be better than the than the original or the system that we're currently using? What What are the options here? What, why is it different? Hmm. Well, the system, you know, we have many systems. Uh, you know, as I mentioned that uh, there was only one thing I kind of agreed with Lisa McLeod on, that there, that this system, um, you know, and, and I guess the Liberals did too, or they wouldn't have created this idea, but there's so many systems happening. You know, we have Ontario Works and Ontario Disability Benefits and um, ways of helping, uh, lifting people's income up in different ways. We have seniors above 65 are technically in a sim- already on a basic income, a guaranteed annual income in a similar, you know, in a, in a way um, you could compare those two things. That's why the basic income was only um, available for people up to age uh, 64. Um, and so what it would do would be to uh, really uh, revolutionize um, income uh, security systems in, in uh, Ontario and bring a few of those, collapse them and, and create one where we would all um, have this, uh, available to us and of course as our income rose the um you know it would be income tested of course it was based on income tax and so uh you know as your income rises obviously uh there would be no requirements so uh for that and it would uh you know basic income payments wouldn't be there but uh this pilot was based on uh all four thousand people were um you know living below the low income cutoff uh how was this being received by the users or is it too early to determine that uh, how how was being on the basic income? Yeah, how was it being yeah, received by those that, that okay. participated? Oh, well, the, um, you know, the uh, the emails and phone calls that uh, that I would get that uh, Tom Cooper has received, we, we helped, uh, we encouraged people to sign up. Uh, you know, it was difficult for some people to trust, uh, and now we see why, um, and, uh, to trust that uh, government would, would, um, would carry through on such a, uh, it seemed untrue to people. Um, and the calls that we get are all about the great things happening. I have one uh, guy that um, that calls me pretty much daily. Uh, Tim Button is one of the basic income participants. And, and he's been giving me sort of a day-by-day about his life uh, on basic income. I have a few other people who do the same. And, um, and it's good. 
it's good news. It's uh, relief from depression. It's uh, ability to buy food. It's ability to purchase your own winter coat for the first time. It's going back to school. It's allowing you to keep a job uh, that doesn't cover all your needs, uh, but but might might be the path that you're looking for, you know? Like, so it's not full-time, but it's part-time, but if I could get this on my resume for a bit, but for sure it won't, uh, you know, fulfill a family's needs. So there's a, a really, there's a lot of really great examples of, um, of the kinds of families and individuals that's supporting all good news. What uh, reasons were given to organizations like yours for scrapping this? Well, no reasons were given to our organizations that like, you know, just, we're just like the rest of Ontario. You know, we found out, uh, a week ago last Wednesday, um, uh, you know, through a, a news conference that, uh, the minister of, children and all the things uh, she's responsible for, including social, uh, social services and community services, that Lisa McLeod announced that, uh, that they were going to wind this down. Uh, we don't know what that means. Um, it will take over the course of 100 days is what she's talked about. Uh, and yet uh, I was present with uh, many other basic income I mean, with basic income recipients, I'm not one, um, and um, and others, uh, and Tom Cooper arranged for a group to be in Queen's Park last week, and uh, again, the minister spoke to this and said, um, you know, we can guarantee that uh, re- participants will receive their checks in August, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really all anybody knows, uh, What whether September will result in another check or a letter that says, you know, the plan to wind down. They've promised a compassionate response. Um, but no matter, I, I can't imagine, you know, any of the responses, except for carrying on this pilot, um, are, are, they're going to result in uh, just a dismantling of, uh, of people's lives who were already on the edge and just starting to get back, you know, mm. to, um, yeah. To this, was, being. this was a three-year program. Are we one year in now? A little over one year. A little over one year. The first folks who got their checks in Hamilton, uh, it was last October. Right. So when I, so I mean, they haven't had a, a check even for a full year. Right. But um, the application part and all of that, you know, was announced over a year ago. But uh, in terms of the actual payments, it's been less than a year. Some people only got on in. Uh, what did somebody tell me? I think just this past February. So you know, just a few months for some folks. So I remember when this was first announced, uh, it seemed to it, it, it seemed that all three parties were in agreement with this. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a uh, it was put forward um, definitely, as you said, by the uh, the uh, Kathleen Wynne's Liberal government. But um, uh, even during the course of the election, uh, twice. Uh, Doug Ford's government said, um, I mean, uh, you know, during the mm-hmm. election, so it wasn't government, but uh, said that uh, they would definitely um, look forward to the results. And uh, and when questioned a second time, yes, we will continue to pilot. And Andrea Horvath uh, never um, never wavered in a commitment to mm-hmm. keep the pilot going, um, but didn't have any extra, uh, you know, any extra comment um, about how that would go either. But uh yeah, certainly this was not expected. It was seen that it was, um, you know, well, not a, you know, necessarily like the poverty reduction strategy, which is a tripartite agreement uh, started in 2008 um, under the McGuinty government, and all three parties signed on to that. But it wasn't in that same level of, of agreement. But it, like I said, you know, there's certainly 
documented evidence that it would continue for the three years. What does it do to organizations like yours and the people who use the services um, when this sort of thing happens? Because this, again, it's not policy. It was a test program. And, and the whole idea was to see if it works or not. Um, how does it make organizations or the people who participate feel that, you know, here they went out on a limb and tried something, and, and as you said, that's why we didn't want to do it in the first place. We mm. thought something would... Because I remember having the discussion with you, or, or perhaps it was yep. Tom, with people were concerned because they thought, well, if I get this, I'm going to lose the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And where yep. does that leave those people that are caught in limbo? Yes. Yeah, you know, I have to... Right from the start, I was uh, I was pretty skeptical. Um, and But the more and more that I saw, you know, the uh, the people, you know, the the, the public um, servants that were implementing it, the feedback that they took from us uh, here in Hamilton, meeting with people who, um, you know, had an experience of low income, uh, you know, adjusting all kinds of things uh, based on our feedback. Uh, you know, my, our, my confidence and, their, and also uh, other people's confidence that we're going to apply for this uh, was boosted for sure. Um, and what it does, I mean, our, I work for the Social Planning Research Council. I mean, we, of course... Uh, believe in good, solid research. We thought that this was uh, a really good opportunity to uh, to to carry on this work. Uh, so we're disappointed. But the uh, the people that are that are on it, you know. So for example, I uh, coordinate the Women's Housing Planning Collaborative. So there were a number of uh, of women's organizations that I w- met with the other day, and I, you know, as we talked about it, those uh, leaders in those women's organizations said there's many women that they've spoken to who's uh, lives were now on uh, a path like within just a few months the uh, the upswing that this made uh, you know a few hundred dollars in people's lives uh, was incredible and they see already the panic the um, you know I, I received an email from someone this morning from one of those organizations uh, you know she'd already she doesn't know what to do you know um, she signed a lease should she go for it or not go for it what's going to happen People, imagine that you were offered a raise, you know, by your boss is what one person said. And, you and you know, there was a date for it and everything. And, and you went out in advance, you know, and thought, wow, there's, this car is ready to go. I'm going to get it now. And, you know, I'm getting my raise next week anyway. Mm. And, uh, and then the race didn't come through, and now you've got your car. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are middle, you know, middle class people need to be able to relate to these stories as well. And that's the situation these participants are finding themselves in. Deirdre Pike has been with us, Senior Social Planner, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Deirdre, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, Scott. Thanks for, for looking into this. All right. Okay. Thank you. We'll chat again on this for sure. Let's bring in Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, Global News Radio, heard here, of course, uh, every weeknight on CHML. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hello there, sir. Hey, Alex, did we get anything from the PC party on why they decided to scrap this uh, a third of the way in? Why not just continue with the three-city project that everybody thought was a good idea when it started? Well, I think it's a good question. I'm not sure, you know, other than the fact that they got a major majority why they went ahead and did this, but they can do it, so they did do it. And, you know, I think it wouldn't have hurt to keep the program in place you know, like what was a few more million dollars? So I think they kind of kick themselves in the own hornet nest on this one without having to. Having said that, um, you know, I think a lot of people have to remember the Liberals had 15 years to do this, Scott. Why did they wait till the last year other than the fact that it had been an election year? Yeah. And I think had they done this, you know, 10 years ago, 
Um, we wouldn't well, we wouldn't be talking about this because they may, may have brought in a system that was working and successful. But again, some just to play devil's just just to yeah. play devil's advocate here, Alex. Maybe some would say, well, the problem wasn't as extreme ten years ago as it is now. I don't know about that. I mean, we've we we have been using social services. Yeah, it's nothing new here. The end of the, it's not new. It's not done efficiently. And if we can find a system at this point, because it was never supposed to be a permanent thing, so governments right across the aisle have had more than their few decades to get this thing right to stop you know certain programs bring in others or at least you know streamline it so that it's more efficient do you think the alternative the what the pcs are going to end up with is going to be more complicated especially as they wean people off this that they had to work so hard to get on um you know how, how do these people trust government moving forward well look i think you have to keep in mind that there's four thousand people um and not all of them are you know, I spoke with a gentleman last year that certainly isn't um, in need. He certainly was in need of a change in his life, and so he had switched his job up from a banking job and is going to hopefully kick out on his own in an entrepreneurial position. And I know a few people who are on the, uh, you know, the pilot project that aren't exactly destitute. Having said that, there will be people that will be caught off guard, but I don't in any way think that there's not going to be any kind of government services for them. My question is like yours. What are you going to put in its place that finally makes sense without going back to the same program? I would like to see something that goes in place that has one agency, you get one check, one program, and, and more of a support system to get people back in the workplace. Do you think this is going to become a sore spot for the PCs simply because, um, again, of that alternative, which is going to be more complicated? Why not let this run out and then say, well, it was their test, we funded it, we saw what happened, now this gives us a reason to go this way or that way. I mean, at this point now, they've just created something for themselves that they really didn't need. Well, they, they, they made a headache for themselves, kind of like they did with the sex ed curriculum. They didn't yeah. have to roll back the old yeah. uh, the, the, the program. They could have kept it in place while they figured out what they were going to do with the new one. Those are self-inflicted wounds, um, if you ask me. Having said that, no country has been able to make the basic income program work. I mean, Finland had been you know, involved in a two-year program. They were hoping that they were going to find a way to keep a program in place, and they canceled it after two years. And so I don't think it's impossible. I mean, at the at the root level, I do support a basic income. However, we don't have a system in place where it's not taken advantage of. I mean, I, I interviewed uh, this fellow last week, and he's like, you know, I just don't have that, um, you know, the nerves and, and the, what's the word I'm looking for, the anxiety of getting up every day and not having a check and not knowing where to go. I mean, at least I've got a check coming in as he goes out and finds what he wants to do. And that's fantastic. But there are those of us who still have to work and pay for that. So what I would like to see is, you know, a program that actually works for those who need it, not just people that want to kind of experiment and see where they want to go in life. It seemed when all of this and uh, when all of it uh, was brought up a year or so ago, I guess over that now, um, yeah. that all three political parties were behind it, including Patrick Brown. Are you surprised yeah. the, the the flip-flop here? No, because Patrick would have, I think, I think Patrick would have voted any which way to go. He He did not want to... Um, ever kind of cause ripples in the water. So Patrick was a bit, you know, finicky like that. He would just kind of go where the, the tide took him. I'm not surprised at all by anything this government's doing because this is what people wanted. Um, you know, despite all the noise, those that, that we had pulled for our own company, Scott, had said we want austerity, we want it now, we don't want to wait. Mm-hmm. Now we have to find out. They've got only 100 days, remember. Like Lisa's got five, Lisa McLeod has five ministries. 
that she has to deal with. And she's got to come up with something to replace this within 100 days. That is not a small feat. That is a giant feat. And you're right. I think it's going to be tricky as to what they get rid of, what they bring in in its place. And I'm not sure we're going to see another basic income program, but I do think you're going to see services that are um, more more streamlined, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Do you think they learned anything from this short period that they've already been on it? I mean, again, no. it's not like we're talking about policy here. This was a test. It involves yeah, no, three cities. It does, yeah. No, you're not going to find those results um, in a year. You know, no. it takes a long time. I think they could have let it run it just for argument's sake, what was working, what was not. But then I go back, like, I all you know, for those who are outraged by this, ask yourself, yeah. Why weren't you more outraged that the government that had almost two decades to do this yeah. didn't? And I thought that that's a valid point. They they had all this time to do it, and it could have gone really far, but they waited for an yeah. election cycle to promise. Yeah, it was a hail mary. Yeah. Um. All right. Getting uh. Before I let you go, I got to get your thoughts on uh, the whole buck of beer thing. Uh, <laughs> I've just came back from two weeks on oh, a holiday, and and you know I, I I drank my weight in beer. Perhaps I don't know. <laughs> um. But it just it burns my rear end every time I go to the store, and I have to pay these outlandish taxes. I think this whole buck of beer thing. Just a big sham. At the end of the day, if he wants to lower the price it costs for me to buy my beer, why doesn't he lower his damn taxes, including the scheduled one that's coming up November 1st? Well, I gotta be honest, why are people so outraged about this? A, it's not costing me anything. B, I don't care. C, I don't drink beer. And B, and D, no one has to take part in this program. That's the beauty of it. You don't have yeah, to. It, that you can't. I, I, I think yeah. you're, you're right. You're right. This doesn't cost us anything. Nobody's losing anything. It's no not like this program. That's, yeah, you're right. It's just, But it's then again, ex- bingo. You just said yeah. it, Alex. It's a total gimmick. So if he, <laughs> yeah. if he wants to sell me a buck of beer, why even bring any of this crap up unless you're going to lower the tax? Well, because they are going to, there will be companies, maybe not now, but there will be companies that will get involved in this and there will be a market for it. Think of Frosh Week. It's about to start in two weeks. Don't you think <laughs> they will be, that whole generation of millennials will love this. And make no mistake, it might be a gimmick, but gimmicks can be very, very popular. Yeah. But he, he you know, the, this, this hysteria, Scott, of, oh my God, it's like, relax, you don't have to take part in it. Mm. I think more people should be worried. Yeah, but here's you my know, point. Issues that we should be more worried. Yeah, and I agree with that 100%. But the point is, if, if you're rattling my cage and telling me you're yeah. going to lower my price of a beer, and then you yeah. don't do it, or it doesn't really make any effect, and you could lower the tax, then you're just drawing attention to something you should have just left alone, no? Um, well, look, it's only a quarter difference from what the Liberals did. I mean, again, we're not talking major changes. Well, nobody's se- catching attention. But and nobody's selling things. beer for a yeah. buck twenty-five a bottle now, anyway. Like nobody's everybody's saying, "Oh, it's going down to a buck." Well, no one's doing it at the liberal price. It's still a buck no, forty-seven. Right. No, I think I think what we're seeing here, and what I'm hoping we're seeing, is a turn away from what we have come to know in this province, which is the monopoly. Yeah. And I don't look at this as anything bad. If this is the first step that the Ford government is doing in, in stripping out the, the, the monopoly and bringing us back to privatization, and, and that's where you really do see the price changes, like break up that government hold on booze and allow the independents to mark, market and, and price it, that would be massive. And the only government I can see doing that would be a Doug Ford government to say, you know what, we're going to go the, the route of Alberta. 
which is if you haven't lived there, it is the best system, period. You go anywhere you want and grab a case of beer yeah. any time of the day, yeah. and you don't actually, you know, the, the sky does not fall on you. It's crazy yeah. to be treated like an adult, you know? I know. I lived there in the 80s and couldn't believe it. It's taken um, us 30 yeah, years to even anything. get back. Driver's license. I know. It's bizarre. Just easy. Yeah. Alex Pearson's been with us, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, Global News Radio. Of course, you can hear every weeknight right here on CHML. Alex, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, new details emerging over the Fredericton shooting. What is the latest? And uh, a bit of an update as well on uh, the Danforth Festival, which happened this past weekend. And, of course, uh, last month's shooting there. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, and he is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to join you, Scott. All right. What uh, what can you tell us about what has transpired in this small town? Uh, do we have a motive yet? No, I, I don't think we have a motive yet, although there's some information that's starting to come out from sources who say they know the person who was the shooter, but it's 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 unconfirmed and it's uh you know everything i guess these days is potentially inflammatory so uh at first we heard that he was a relatively nice guy then as time point as time goes on we we find out that he was a bit of a loner and and all that sort of stuff uh have police offered any information or any indication a love triangle is there any sort of thought as to where this is going well, as I said, there's been some, uh, what I'm going to call, uh, unconfirmed discussion about the fact that he was apparently at some points uh, mumbling against uh, uh, refugees and Sharia law and things like that, and he was always upset about that. Although there's no indication anybody killed here had anything to do with that. So whether that was a motive or the person just somehow uh, lost it, uh, it's yet to be determined. But the circumstances as we're learning them are pretty are pretty scary for how the crime was carried out. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that and how it did all carry out? Yeah, so the toughest thing, let's take it from your sitting, uh, you're at the, at the police station, which was about 10 minutes away in normal drive time from the scene. You're just about to do shift change, so the, you know, the night shift is there, the day shift is getting ready to come, come on, and a call comes across apparently for you know, shots being fired at this address. Now, we don't know any more specifics than that, and that's important for the police to know when they respond, what the radio call is actually for. But of course, radio calls sometimes can be wrong, too, and they give information. So these officers, one apparently was going off duty, decided to stay on. The two of them, they zipped over there. And I imagine there was a bit of a chain of a bunch of cars that were making their way over, racing over to this call for shots fired. Now, when the officers arrived there, we don't know if they heard about this before they got there or not, but they saw one body lying on the ground. Uh, appearing to be dead. The windshield shot out of the car and sitting in the passenger seat apparently was the woman who was killed. And the police are rolling up to a shooting call. So what do they do? Do they assume there's a sniper out there about to kill them as they roll up? Or or do they think, well, no, something's happened here. The bad guys probably run away. Let's go see if we can save these people. These officers, one a veteran of quite some time, one who had just joined a while ago, who had just had more recent training, they both had the experience between them. They made the choice that let's go right to where the bodies are and see if we can save these people or what the status is. Right. Apparently, uh, Scott, they were shot as soon as they, uh, they got there uh, and got out of their cars. They were killed. And a sergeant was just rolling up 
on the scene and behind them at that time. So, uh, and again, if I'm if I'm reading too much into this, and I and I know you've got limited information here, does it appear that this guy was shooting right out of the windows of his apartment at these people down below? Yeah, it, it does. And and I'll make uh, let me give you an educated guess of what I'm looking at, which is, and this is just a guess. I'm not going to say I know this, but you can sort of see from the one picture that's made the rounds that someone took of a uh, police officer standing in, with a car there after the scene, the holes in the windows. You can see evidence, mar- evidence markers down on the ground, little green evidence markers. And that would look to me like a rifle was pointed out the window, and that's where the shell casings would have uh, ejected from the rifle, is about where those markers would have uh, lied. Now, I, I stand to be corrected on that. doesn't look like it's a position where the officers would have been, but he was apparently shooting out of a window from the third floor. So... Uh, he took out the officers, and when the sergeant came up on scene, he saw the officers lying there and uh, immediately went to contain the shooter in the third-floor apartment to contain it, the stairwell and the door. Uh, what we're able to surmise a little bit here is he apparently told another officer there, who was also arriving on the scene, to take up a position, and if he had a chance to take uh, to shoot him, to shoot the shooter. And once again, a bit of educated uh, guessing here. You can tell from, once again, looking at the bullet holes in the window of this apartment, there's a, a tight grouping to the left where it looks like it would have been someone who had a uh, likely a carbine rifle like the police all got after the terrible Moncton shootings. Uh, it looks like some shots were put through there, and court documents indicate that the shooter was hit in the abdomen, uh, went down, and the police entered the apartment. So that's what it sounds like, how it's, how it's going down. So it's possible police could have shot him through the window of the apartment from below. That looks like a guess. Now, they yeah. haven't confirmed that. They right. haven't confirmed whether there's any, once again, any self-inflicted wounds by the uh, shooter. Right. Uh, we're just left to surmise this because the police are being just uh, oh so quiet about, about the whole thing. Uh, so is there any reason to believe anything was any of this was targeted, any of these shootings were targeted, or he was just shooting at people through the window? Well, the witnesses uh, who, who spoke uh, on the day of it going on, we heard a series of things. One we heard, this was early in the morning, and, you know, looking at the apartment that this guy was in, I could see that there was no air conditioner in the window. It's early in the morning. You know, it's been hot enough. Uh, we One of the witnesses claimed they heard somebody yell, shut up, shut up, shut up. And then the shots rang out. Now, is this the guy yelling from his apartment because he can't sleep? He's in his apartment, he hears noise, he's losing it, and he shoots them? Hmm. Other witnesses who were hiding in their apartment said that shots went right through their window into their apartments. Hmm. So was he just shooting at anybody who poked their head up and he's, you know, sort of lost it? And then the police arrive and he shoots the police? I mean, that's sounding where it's going, but... Uh, you can never tell what the whole card's going to be on this, Scott. I mean, that's the trick. The police know what the whole card is, or maybe they're trying to find out what it is to find out exactly what ties all this senseless killing of these officers and these two people together. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any relationship between the shooter and any of these people at this point. That's At, at this point, uh, that's what it appears. It appears the other couple, they, they were a couple there that were killed. Uh, they were the first ones killed. Um and then the police officers who, you know, rolled up and ended up giving their lives, going into basically, wow. you know, a shooting gallery. And, you know, if this was a rifle, which were, I believe they did say it was a long gun, uh, 
bullet-resistant vests that police have, the standard issue ones, they don't stop bullet rifles. Yeah. Uh, they stop uh, handgun uh, rounds. So right. they, they just wouldn't have stood a chance. Uh, has there been any talk of mental illness yet? There was one report that came out that someone who spoke at that time to the unnamed person's parents who claimed that the person uh, suffered from some sort of mental illness. But, you know, that's such a wide spectrum yeah, of, is, of yeah. saying something. It's like you can say, someone, oh, someone's got a little extra weight on. Well, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean, you know, on something? It's it's such a uh, such a widely used term. I'm not sure how much uh, credence we can put in that unless the police want to firm that up. Hmm. Um, do we know anything more about the weapon used? Uh, long gun, you were saying, do we know anything more about this or this man's fondness for guns? No, they, they, the police, uh, last I saw, would not said they would not give any information on the gun or what type of gun it was. So we don't have any indication of the particular type of gun or if it was legally owned or if he had a permit for the gun or, 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 or the source of it. Uh, we don't know that there's any history on this man or the apartment. I mean, typically what happens, you know, police rely so heavily on their radio dispatchers on things like this when they roll to it to a place like that they would be checking for a history of calls in there for violence and weapons and, and things like that but we don't know what evidence uh, came through the 911 system to the police um to assist them or point them on the right track uh th- th- this was a long gun there was lots of chatter a while ago when the long gun registry uh was scrapped by the last government uh the current government uh, trudeau says he doesn't has doesn't have any interest in the long gun registry or reinstituting that although we'll look at other laws i guess uh, what does that say does that is there any reason to bring up the long gun registry in this its validity in in this discussion well, I think that, that argument's been hashed to death. I don't think it's a political win for those who even think it's good. And uh, for those who think it's bad, they've got lots of uh, information to be able to prove it. So it seems like an idea whose time has passed. Yeah. But perhaps perhaps in going through this one, there may be another thread of something else they could have figured out. Like, let's just, and I'm totally speculating here, let's say this guy had mental health problems but managed to go buy the gun just three days ago and there wasn't a, a good enough check done or some right. such thing, or there may be some other check or balance could be put in place. That may be something that could be looked at procedurally, but it's it's too early to tell as to what the yeah. uh, what's going on with this one, Scott. Uh, obviously, uh, it was uh, last month that we had a shooting on the Danforth in Toronto and uh, a big festival that they've uh, just recently celebrated uh, over the past week or so. What Any more information on this, on the shooter, on this case? The police have given, they haven't given one, uh, another presser at all to update it. And every time I'm at police headquarters, I ask them, when's the next one? They said, there's nothing planned, nothing scheduled. And I look and roll my eyes and I say, I don't think that's good. I think the public needs to hear what's going on. And as far as I know, there's still nothing scheduled. But what is coming out are people are able to find out certain bits of information, as we've seen that the family has had its issues with his brother, tied to someone else who was busted with 33 guns with uh, carfentanil enough to kill all of Canada. So we're just, we're being left with not much information. We still don't even know the names of all the victims, Scott. Hmm. Do you expect to hear more on this? I don't know how we don't, except the media, as far as I can tell, has got no appetite for asking about it. And I'm not sure they know who to ask because no one's putting their head up on it. Hmm. And and I I think there's 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 lots of reasonable information that needs to be looked at here 
particularly as it ties to the weapons. You know, and one issue that uh, that I had found out about, Scott, this shooting took place on the Sunday. The Friday just before, ISIS put out uh, through one of their uh, web channels a call for people to strike against the West u- using biological weapons. And they actually described some ways to make some biological weapons on the Friday just before the Sunday. Now, on the same Friday night, right in the area that this guy lived, the, the shooter, there was a report of a gun going off and shell casings being found right around his address. Hmm. Now, was that him out there test firing the gun or firing something off, or is it totally unrelated? Well, we don't know. So I, I think it's the sort of stuff that I think needs to be tied together. I, I really think that the people of Canada are a lot brighter than they get credit for from the police when they when they don't give out information and they think that they're trying to protect people. I don't think that they are. I think they're causing, in some cases, more uh, problems and speculation than an inability to deal with the problems. Are you surprised that there hasn't been more attention to this case? Again, I've been, I've been, I've been on. What Scott? Everybody that I talk to, every cop I talk to, every law enforcement source that I have. And I will tell you, even all the media people that I talk to, they don't believe that this is a whole thing with mental illness and everything else. They think there's more to it, but where are you left to uh, say that there is more to it if you can't question or even ask the police to confirm or deny uh, certain facts? The fact, that, and we talked about this with the Aaron Driver case, the fact that the that the shooter or the, the, the perpetrator is dead, I mean, is that case closed for them? Well, it makes it easier in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it makes it easier to, to not have to go so far and wrap a file up. The only time when these things change is like you saw with the Sherman case. If someone happens to have enough money to turn around and lay their own, uh, get their own detectives there and do something else. But, you know, we're not out of the woods yet because, I mean, there's still a bunch of people that were wounded by this guy and they may have a case to bring uh, their own charges or their own civil suits or their own discovery to find out what happened and why those two beautiful young women got killed and why the other ones are injured, why one's not ever going to walk again. Hmm. And there may just be a civil case court discovery on all of this process yet. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Ross, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.